All right. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have missed you guys, and I, I, I genuinely mean that. Like, it's, it is one of those things where you don't know what you got till it's gone a little bit, right? So uh, if you want to come say hi or introduce yourself if you're new, and then I'll be out in the lobby after this. There's just, there's so many people that I'm used to talking to every single week, and then I haven't seen you for two months, and I miss you. So come hang with me after this. Uh, like, like Jesse said, I've been on sabbatical, and the, and the concept of a sabbatical, not only is it like pretty much exclusive to church world, but even in church world, it's really, really rare. And so like the, the gift of having a sabbatical was not lost on me and my family. Like Allie and I and the kids took full advantage of our two months. Um, we went on a couple trips. I, I took my whole family on vacation. Uh, one, one like long weekend, Allie and I got away, just the two of us. I took two different solitude retreats, just like me and my Bible and Jesus to, to pray and to reflect. And then all the time in between those trips, I just filled it with stuff that I like to do. It was awesome. Um, I read a ton. I seriously, I read close to 40 books. Like I, I did a lot of reading, probably too much. Um, I went on a lot of dates with Allie. I, I played with my kids a lot because um, I have nothing to worry about, nothing in the back of my head. So it's like, sure, I'll do this puzzle for the 15th time with you. That sounds fun. Um, and then after like playing with my kids for a while, I started to like count the blessings that they are in my life, you know, and it's like the more that I counted the blessings, I decided in, in mid-January to get a vasectomy. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Did the pastor just talk about his vasectomy? <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> um, anyway, I have had countless people ask me, like, what's the highlight of your sabbatical? And I'll share it with you. Like, for sure, the highlight of my sabbatical was uh, taking Allie and I took our three kids to San Diego for a week. And, and there's a bunch of reasons that that was really, really fun to do. Um, you know, first of all, it was fun to like go enjoy the beach in warm weather in the middle of like early January. That was fun. Um, in fact, when our plane was taken off from Denver to go on vacation, it started snowing here and I had no sympathy for you. <laughs> I just looked out the window. I was like, later suckers. Yeah, fun, have fun shuffling that. Um, it was, it was fun to like break up the routine and go somewhere new and, and, and introduce the kids to it. But for sure, the like number one reason that San Diego was the highlight of my sabbatical was because Allie and I got to watch our kids experience totally new things for the very first time. And that was very fun. Right, so like everything was new. Like, for example, they got to fly on a plane and they thought that was the coolest. Like you become an adult and you realize that you forgot how cool that is. Like, it's really cool to go flying around. And, and even on one of these flights, the pastor or pastor, the pilot, he could be a pastor. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> The, the pilot was awesome in that like old school pre 9-11 way. So we're, we're like boarding the plane and he saw my kids and he was like, do you guys want to see the cockpit? They have no idea what that is. I do. So I, I was the one acting like I was a kid. I was like, yes, sir. We want to see the cockpit. So <laughs> we, we go in there and he shows us all the buttons and like lights the board up for us, shows us how he flies the plane. He, he gave my kids uh, these little like aluminum trading cards that have the plane, a picture of the plane on the front and information about it on the back. It was awesome. Uh, Chloe, our little one, took her little uh, airplane trading card to school, to preschool with her for a week straight. Like, and it was literally the only thing in her backpack. Um, we went to Legoland, so I got to watch my kids experience roller coasters for the first time. That was a blast. Um, 
Emery, my oldest, she was the first one brave enough to try a roller coaster with me. She was still a little nervous though. And so we're like getting buckled up and, and I'm trying to talk to her, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm right here. Okay, it's gonna be fine. It's safe for, you're gonna have a blast. And then it's of course, like just like whoosh and you do the whole roller coaster. And then we pull back in and the crowds were really light there that day. And so we pull back in and an employee goes, hey, there's like no line. Do you guys wanna just ride this thing again? And I look at M to let her make that decision because I still don't know if she enjoyed what she just experienced yet or not. And her hair is blown back like she's been electrocuted. And this, this guy just goes, do you want to ride again? And she just goes, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, one ride and she's a total roller coaster junkie. And I mean it when I say junkie, you have to look at this picture of M on her first roller coaster. That it's because she's kind of washed out. So if we can just zoom in just a little bit. <laughs> Junkie, right? She's forever chasing that first ride. Um, it's, a, it's a crappy picture because we actually, you know, afterwards we went and I was like, let's go see the picture. And we're just dying laughing. And I asked the lady, I was like, how much is it to buy this picture? And she said, 30 bucks. And I'm cheap. So I was like, cool, click took a picture. <laughs> uh, by far, though, my, my favorite moment of visiting San Diego was actually right when we got there. Because uh, we get there, we get our rental car and everything. And we had a couple hours to kill before we could check into our room. And so we decided to kill those hours at the beach. Um, and so it was really fun. We're driving through Oceanside, California, and there's, there's buildings everywhere. And then, and then you like turn a corner and the second you turn this corner, it's just like, boom, you are at the beach. Like there's the ocean and all three of my kids at the same time, they just go, whoa, like it, it blew their little minds. And so we pull over and we, we get out of the car. And even though they're in their Colorado clothes still, like their airplane clothes, they go tearing off to play in the beach and, and they wade in the ocean, like knee deep in their jeans. And they're looking for seashells and playing in the, in the sand and watching the surfers. And, and it was this sweet moment where Allie and I could kind of stand back and watch as our little landlocked Colorado kids experienced like the wonder and the majesty of the ocean. It was really awesome. Because the truth is with the ocean, is, the ocean is one of those things where it's like you have not experienced it until you go and see it for yourself, right? It's like you can see pictures of it, right? And you can watch planet Earth. You could read books. You could know everything there is to know about the ocean. But I don't care, man. You haven't experienced it until you just like you go to the beach and you stand there with your toes in the water and you look out at the terrifying like enormity of the last place on planet Earth that mankind is not like fully explored. And it was just, it was really fun to get to take my kids to like come and see the ocean for the first time. It was awesome, right? I know there are some of you out here right now that you're going like, dude, I'm, you know, I'm glad you're back. That's great. But like, are you going to talk about your vacation the entire time? Because I have places to go. And I know, I, I know that we all have plans to watch some team that we've never heard of called the, the, the bagels or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, big bagels fans. Uh, from some city no one's ever visited. Called Sinzetti's or I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Whoever a Cincinnati fan is, we all have plans to hopefully watch this JV team win the Super Bowl tonight. I, and I know that, okay? So 
there's actually a reason that I'm talking about San Diego right now, and it's this. It's the truth that there are certain things in life that, again, it's like, I'm sorry, you don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know what you're missing out on until you come and see the thing for yourself. The ocean is certainly one of those things. Outer space, like the theme of this whole series, that's one of those things. Like We can read about it, we can watch videos about it, see pictures of it, but you and I will never experience what it's like to leave Earth's atmosphere, right? Unless you become as rich as Jeff Bezos. And if you do, side note, I am begging you to take me with you. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I would amputate my dominant arm to go to, to outer space. I would really do that. Um, so you just write that down. You invite me. Um, anyway, uh, the truth is that there are certain things in life. It's like hearing about it is not enough. And, and learning about it is not enough. And you can be book smart about it, but you haven't experienced it until you come and see it for yourself. And in my opinion, a life with Jesus is like the ultimate example of one of those things. And, and that's what we're gonna talk about today because that's what our fifth value at Flatirons is all about. It's all about come and see. Like, come and see how good a life with Jesus could be. And I wanna explain this value to you and kind of break it down for you. And, and to do that, we're gonna jump into the Bible. We're gonna to go to the very first chapter of the book of John. John is one of the four biographies of Jesus's life. And we're gonna to go to this first chapter and kind of zoom in on this moment of history, this story that begins like this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he kind of nudged his buddies and he pointed and he said, look, it's the lamb of God. Now, right away, we have to pause because we got to understand a few things about context here for us to understand like the crazy, profound gravity of what just happened in this moment. All right. First thing we got to understand is who is John? All right. Well, John is John the Baptist and John is a very important dude. All right. In a different part of the Bible, we learn that John's entire life purpose is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And what that means is John's entire purpose in life is to prepare the Jewish people for the arrival of their long awaited Messiah. Right. When he says, look, there's the Lamb of God, the, the name Lamb of God is another name for the Messiah. All right. Who or what is the Messiah? Okay, well, like four centuries before this moment that we're reading about, centuries before this, the, the Israelites used to see a slew of prophets, and prophets were mouthpieces for God. So prophets would hear messages from God and then go share those messages to God's people. And usually these messages were super heavy, like almost all the time. It was repent, stop sinning, turn back to God, or your entire city is going to be destroyed. Like they did not have an easy job, and prophets were very tough dudes. But, but centuries before this moment, when they had prophets, there was this reoccurring prophecy, and it was a promise from God that he would send the Jewish people a Messiah. And the Messiah was going to be the future redeemer of God's people. So God promised multiple times to these prophets, he goes, I'm going to send you a Messiah. And, and this Messiah is going to be a king who's going to free you from bondage. And he's going to restore you to your former glory, right? That's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to redeem you of all your sins. He's going to usher you into this new age of peace and unity with each other and unity with God. It was, it was the promise of the coming Messiah. 
Now, in our day and age, in 2022, it's, it's really difficult for us to truly grasp like, just how deeply the Jewish people clung to this promise of God. And that's because between the time of the prophets and the time that Jesus was born, there are four centuries of total silence from God. He has not made a peep to his people. 400 years. I get, I get upset when God is quiet with me for like months or years at a time. It's been 400 years. On top of that, when Jesus is born, Israel is under Roman occupation and, and Romans are, are, the Roman way is threatening the entire way of life for God's people and God still won't speak up. Like no prophets, no nothing. How would you feel? Imagine it, like imagine your entire identity, like literally your entire national identity is wrapped up in being God's chosen people. But at the same time, for 400 years now, he has not spoken up and he has not lifted a finger while you are repeatedly conquered and overrun by foreign nations. If that happened to you, would you really feel like one of God's very special chosen people? Probably not. This is what happens with us whenever you and I beg God for something good. That's right. It's like I'm just I'm begging to find that special other person because I can't do dinner alone again tonight or I'm begging for healing because the diagnosis was bad or I'm begging for a job because I don't know where the next rent check is coming from. And for years, we just beg him for something that's like, I don't see how it's anything but good. And he stays silent and that makes us frustrated. And we start to think that God has abandoned us. This is what the Jewish people are living in, except they've been living in that for 400 years. And so this promise of the coming Messiah, who's going to set them free, it is like the only thread of hope that the Jewish people have to cling to. The Messiah is all they talk about. He is all they think about. When they go to bed at night, they weep and they beg and they plead with God to please, please, please send my rescuer. Please send our Messiah. Right? So going back to our story, when John nudges his two buddies and he points at Jesus and he says, look, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Messiah. This is a total shock to the system because John has the audacity to claim that the 400 years of silence from God are over. God's going to start speaking up and he's going to speak up through that man right on the other side of the creek. So naturally, these two guys that John are, is, is talking to, they, they jump up and they start following Jesus. And I don't mean that they became followers of Jesus. I mean, they started stalking him, really. They're sneakily following him around and they're trying to figure out, like, could John be right? Could this actually be the Messiah that we have been waiting for for centuries? They're obviously not very good at sneaking around because Jesus catches them. Here's what happens next. We read, turning around, Jesus saw them following him and he asked, what do you want? Now, I love this part of the story because I, I think our assumption is, I think we're assuming that Jesus is being rude, right? Like his tone of voice is like, what do you want? Like, stop following me around. You guys are creeps. Like, that's what we picture. That's not what's happening though. Instead, Jesus is cutting to the heart of the matter, just like he always does, right? He doesn't ask these guys a question. He asks them the question. It is the question he asks you and me. It is the question we ask ourselves. He cuts to the heart of the matter and he goes, what do you want? Really, like what do you, what do you really want in this life? What do you desire the most? What, what keeps you up late at night? And, and what are you waiting and hoping and looking and longing for in this life? 
That question, what do you want? It's at the very core of my identity and yours. What do you want? Typically, we answer that with our circumstances, right? So we'll say stuff like, well, I want to find that special someone that I can settle down with. Or I'm wanting to know if my marriage can even be saved. Like, can it be pulled back from the ledge that we're on? Or I want my addiction to disappear. Like, that's how we answer. But when you peel back the layers of that and you get to the heart of the matter, what we really want can be boiled down to a few things. We want peace. Maybe for you, it's you want love or you want justice, or security, or forgiveness, or joy. Like every individual is so unique, so the circumstances all look different. But if you get to the heart of the matter, at the end of the day, all of us are looking for the same few things. And meanwhile, the only person who can offer those things to you is asking you right now, what do you want? And is it really crazy to believe that you could find that in me? And so Jesus asks these men, he goes, what do you want? And of course, these guys want to know if he's the Messiah. But at the same time, they biff and they choke so hard. I love it. Look at this. He goes, what do you want? And they go, they said, well, rabbi, which means teacher, uh, where, are you, where are you staying? Where are you staying tonight? <laughs> That's their response, right? Jesus asks them the question of life. What do you want? And they could have said, like, we want the Messiah and we want to know if you are him. Like, are you everything that we've been waiting and hoping and looking for? Are you the answer to all of our suffering? But instead, these two knuckleheads respond with socially awkward small talk, right? Which I love because that's how I would probably be. Like, I'm pretty socially awkward. So I can imagine if I bumped into like a hero of mine, like Conan O'Brien, I would just be like, do you eat at Chili's and go there with me now or something? So I totally get it. They, they choke. But at the same time, Jesus is the man. All right. And so even though they ruin this first introduction, Jesus turns it around for them. Remember, they ask Jesus, where are you staying? And Jesus replies, come and you will see. And there's a double meaning to Jesus's answer. All right, that the first meaning, the surface level meaning is basically like, sure, if you want to know where I'm staying, little weird, but you can come and see for yourself. But the meaning underneath that is, again, he's cutting to the heart of the matter. He knows what they wanted to ask him. They wanted to ask, are you the Messiah? And his answer to them is the same. It's the same answer to you if you're wondering. He says, if you really want to know whether or not I am the answer to everything you are waiting and hoping and looking for, you can't just read about me and you can't just learn about me. There's one way to figure it out. You have to come and see for yourself. That's Jesus's response. And the rest is literal history. Right? One of these men, we discover his name is Andrew. Uh, the other one we're pretty sure is John. Not John the Baptist, but John who wrote the book that we're reading right now. And Andrew and John, they start following Jesus around and they become his disciples. And for three years, they sit under his teaching and they watch him perform these crazy miracles and they witness his death and they witness his resurrection and they realize for themselves that Jesus really is the answer to everything they've been waiting and hoping and looking for. And so Andrew and John become two of the very first Christians in the history of history because they decided to come and see Jesus for themselves. Now, time out. What does this story have to do with us living in Colorado today in 2022? And to explain that, I kind of want to split the room uh, into two understandably like very broad, very general categories right now. 
right? The first category would be anyone who believes in Jesus. You have found what you're looking for in him, all right? If that's you, sit tight. I'm gonna talk to you in just a second. First, I wanna address the other category in the room. This would be anyone who is still trying to figure out this God, Jesus, and faith thing for yourself, and you are on the fence, right? You, are, you do not know what you believe in. I have been there, all right? If that's you, all I wanna say to you right now is I believe it is one hundred percent worth your time to keep leaning in like you're doing right now in order to see for yourself if Jesus really is who he says he is. I believe it's 100 percent worth your time. I also think that it just takes exactly that. It takes time. To go back to our story, like we have no idea how long it took Andrew and John to finally realize that Jesus was the answer for everything, right? Maybe it happened right away, but more likely they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until they saw the dude die and come back to life. Which means even for the disciples who walked and talked and ate with and hung out with Jesus every single minute of every waking hour for three years, it took them three years, to finally understand how good and how awesome Jesus is. My point being, keep coming and keep seeing for yourself and keep leaning in and keep trying to figure out Jesus and keep asking like excellent questions and keep digging in. He won't let you down. I know that for experience. I just also know from experience that it takes time to see that for yourself. So keep coming. And in a totally non-patronizing way, Just coming from someone I had to wrestle with Jesus for years before I finally believed in him. And then ever since the moment I have believed in him, I just keep wrestling with him because I'm stubborn. Coming from someone who has put the blood, sweat, and tears in. I'm telling you, dude, it is worth it. So keep leaning in and I'm proud of you. Right? Like I'm proud of you for it's it's risky in this day and age to come and figure this stuff out. So I'm proud of you and I'm not the only one. All right? If you fall into that category, you are off the hook now. And you sit back, take a breath, relax. I'm going to go bug all the Christian nerds in the room, all right? So you're off the hook. You take a deep breath. For the rest of the room, if you believe in Jesus, all right, and you have discovered in him the answer for everything in life, the rest of this talk is for you, all right? The rest, I'm in this category. So the rest of this talk is for me. I'm preaching to myself right now too. But for those of us who came and we saw and we discovered for ourselves that Jesus is the answer, we now have a responsibility to the people that we love the most. What is that responsibility? Well, let's pick our story back up because we're going to see it on display. Right? Remember, Andrew and John are stalking Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Like dweebs, they reply, like, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. And they do. They follow Jesus for the rest of that day. And somewhere in the middle of that day, this happens. Right? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That's the Christ. And he brought Peter to Jesus. Now, Andrew cannot be positive that Jesus is the Messiah yet. He's only spent like a few hours with Jesus. He he doesn't have concrete proof. He can't form a theological argument around it. He can't even look at Peter and go, hey, just look how much Jesus has changed my life. No, he's spent hours with him. Instead, Andrew is operating on gut. 
He has just got a gut feeling that Jesus is the answer to everything he's been waiting, hoping, and looking for. And his reaction to that gut feeling is to immediately find someone he loves, his brother Peter, and say, Peter, it might sound crazy, but I'm pretty sure I found the answer to everything we have been looking for. So can you please come and see Jesus for yourself? And Peter does. He drops everything and he starts following Jesus. So now Jesus has this little posse with him. He's got Andrew and John and Peter. And, and the very next day, they're all preparing to leave town. And as they're leaving town, they see a guy named Philip. And Jesus looks at Philip and he says, hey, Philip, come follow me. Philip has had even less time than Andrew, John, and Peter to figure out who Jesus is. But again, he's got a gut feeling. And so what is the very first thing Philip does? Look at this. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And he tells them, hey, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. That means the Messiah. He goes, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. It's actually Jesus from that city, Nazareth. Like, you know him. He's Joseph's kid. The first thing Philip does is he goes to tell someone that he loves, his buddy Nathaniel. Nathaniel, though, is wired much more like me. All right. He's skeptical and he's argumentative. All right, and so he starts arguing with Philip and, and the main point of his argument is that Jesus came from Nazareth and Nazareth was kind of like a podunk little village at that time. And so it is kind of funny because Philip basically was like, hey, Nathaniel, we found the future king of the entire world. He's a carpenter from Nebraska. And I was just like, really? <laughs> That's what he says. So, so Nathaniel starts arguing with him. He says this, he goes, Nazareth, like, can anything good come from there? He starts to argue. But then look at this. This is important. How does Philip react to his skeptical friend? Does he try to start and then win a theological argument? No. Does he start trying to build a historical case for Jesus? No. He doesn't go like, well, we actually found fossils that prove that Noah's Ark was actually, he doesn't do any of that. All right, here's a good question. Does, does he look at Nathaniel and go, all right, lost cause, see ya? No. His response is very simple. Nathaniel says, dude, can anything good come from Nazareth? Phil, he's like, Phil, you're crazy, is what he says. And Philip simply replies, come and see. Dude, just come and see for yourself. And again, the rest is history. You should, you should go back and finish this story later today. It's a really cool story. Uh, Nathaniel goes and, and follows, bumps into Jesus. Jesus blows Nathaniel's mind and Nathaniel starts following him. Here's the point. If you believe in Jesus, if you have found the answer to everything you are waiting and hoping and looking for, then you and I now have a responsibility and that responsibility is to go to the people that we love, no, not strangers, the people that we love the most and say, come and see could you please come and see Jesus for yourself? And that is our fifth and final value here at Flatirons. We call it relational evangelism. The easy way to remember that is come and see. And the idea behind this value is that because of what Jesus has done for us, we believe the most loving thing we can do for others is to go to them and invite them to come and see who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what he has done for them. It's just, it's just logical all right, if you really believe what you say you believe, then we also have to believe that the most loving thing we could possibly do is go and tell our friends and family about it. In fact, we would have to believe that it is hateful to withhold that information from them. 
Here's a metaphor for that. It's not a perfect metaphor, but, but the metaphor would be like, let's say you found a cure for a disease and it's a disease that your friend has. Wouldn't it be hateful to not introduce them to the cure? While you sit there and you make excuses for why, like, no, everyone's got to find their own cure on this path in life. You wouldn't do that. You would go sprinting to their house with a big smile on their face. You would bust through their front, front door and you would say, please come and see, like, I have found what you have been looking for. I have found the cure. Of course you would do that. But then when it comes to Jesus, we just, we get real in our heads about it. I think a lot of times we get shy. So I think a lot of times what we're thinking to ourselves is like, yeah, it's like everyone's on their own journey and on their own path. And like, you know, my friend, my family, they have to kind of stumble their own way into faith. Why? Why would we let our friends and family keep wandering lost, waiting, hoping, and looking for the answer to life if you know what the answer is? We get shy. I think sometimes we get nervous. And so what we say to ourselves is like, no, dude, it's weird, right? It's weird to talk about Jesus or it's weird to invite my friend to church and they'll probably say no anyway and then it's just gonna get really awkward and I disagree. Like whoever it is that you're, you're thinking about in your mind right now, they are their own person, right? Peter was his own man. He could have tell, told Andrew to screw off, right? And Nathaniel is his own man. He could have told Philip like, no, no, thank you. And your friend might say no, but don't say no for them preemptively. Let them say no for themselves. They are their own men and their own women. They might say no, but who knows? They might say yes, and it might alter the course of their life, just like it altered the course of yours. We get shy, we get nervous. I think, honestly, most of the time, I think that we believe we are incapable and ill-equipped. And so we think to ourselves, we go, dude, I'm tracking, I love Jesus. Like, I have found the answer in him, but at the same time, I'm also really new to faith, and I don't know much about theology, and I don't know much about the Bible, and if my friend starts asking really deep questions, I'm not gonna have any answers for them. And listen, I understand where you're coming from, but that excuse does not fly. And, and here's why, like we already saw, Andrew knew nothing about Jesus other than what John the Baptist said when he went to Peter and said, dude, you gotta come and see this guy. And Philip knew nothing about Jesus other than the name of the town that he was born in when he goes to Nathaniel and says, dude, you have got to come and see this guy. The point is that Jesus is not telling you to win theological arguments, he's not. He's not telling you that you gotta go get your master's in Bible before you can start talking to your friends about it. And he's not telling you, he's not telling me, and I'm a pastor, he's not telling us to win souls for him. Gross, that's not how it works. <laughs> what he is telling you to do, and he's commanding you to do it, is to go and ask your friends to come and see him, and then he will do the rest of the work. It's just like when I took my kids to the ocean. It's like, I know the ocean is awesome. You don't yet. And so I want you to come and see the ocean with me. And when they stand on the beach, they are overwhelmed and amazed with the power and majesty of the ocean. They're not amazed at me and amazed at Allie or amazed at my knowledge of the ocean. They're amazed at what they're looking at. The ocean did all of the work. I just invited them to come and see the ocean with me. Here's the truth. Right, after this series where we have gone through all five of our, our values here at Flatirons, like we do not do this perfectly. Like I think we do it 
poorly most of the time and God is gracious and then we do it okay some of the time and he's like, hey, nice job. We're not perfect, but at the same time, I hope that you can see that we as a church at Flatirons are trying our hardest to be very intentional with what we do and how we do it and why we do the things that we do. Which means every single week we are trying our hardest to create an environment with the least amount of obstacles possible so that you can ask your friends to come and see how good Jesus is. Which means, even though it sounds backwards at first, and it's very different from the philosophy of of other church communities, neither one is right or wrong, but this one is ours. Even though it sounds backwards at first, every single week we are working to create an environment for the people who are not here yet. And so let me tell you what I can do with and for you. Not just me, of course, also Jim, also our staff, also our lead volunteers who serve out of an abundance of time and energy and passion. Like here's, here's what we can do with and for you, okay? We can put the work in and I can do the, I'll study the scripture and think through the theological stuff and figure out the historical context so that we can prepare a talk like this one that does not flinch from the truth, but also hopefully makes it easy to understand in a very grace-filled way. And we do that so that when your friend shows up, they can understand what we're talking about. We can keep your kids safe and teach them over in kids ministry so that your friend can actually pay attention when they're listening to that talk. We can create all the systems and processes and infrastructure, like all the behind the scenes work that goes into running all of our different ministries so that when your friend really does want to take like one step further, or when your friend says like, well, what do you have for my teenager? We actually have something to offer your friend. We can organize small groups and we can mobilize volunteers and we can distribute the money that you very generously give to serve people locally and globally so that your friend can see there really are still churches that care about something other than themselves and replacing the carpet. We can officiate weddings and funerals for your friend and we can guide them through addiction recovery and we can shepherd them through grief and we can counsel them and we can pray and pray and pray and pray for them, all right? Those are some of the things that we can do with and for your friends. You know what I cannot do for your friends? I cannot get them to show up here. I cannot get them to entertain the possibility of a good life with Jesus that is your job. Not according to me, not according to Flatirons, but according to Jesus. I can't ask your friend to come and see how good Jesus is. Why? Because he's not my friend. He's your friend. We don't advertise at Flatirons, right? Because we know that feels gross to the people who aren't here yet. And those are the people that we care about. So you won't see an advertisement in the newspaper or on a website. We don't have billboards on I-25, That is because our strategy for getting new people to understand how good Jesus is, our strategy is you, dude, only you. It's our only strategy. And that is because we know the truth. There are so many people on staff. I'm definitely one of them. I know what it's like to not believe in Jesus. It wasn't that long ago. I remember I know what it's like to not believe in Jesus. I know what it's like to think that that religion is this massive corruption of power. I know what it's like to think that churches are filled with good-for-nothing, judgmental hypocrites. And still, to this day, every time I get an email where someone says, like, Flatirons is just a tax shelter, I laugh 
Because I used to say the same thing about churches. I know the truth. And the truth is that your friends and family don't trust me. I didn't used to trust people like me. They do not trust me. They do not trust Jim. They do not trust Orange Sticker Flatirons Flatirons Church because they do not trust religion in general. You know who they trust? You. This is why you're friends. If I invite them to come and see the awesome life of Jesus Christ, they laugh at me. If you invite them, they listen. And they start to wonder if maybe there's something to this whole thing because they trust you. It's why you're friends. And so what are you waiting for? The the challenge and the application today is super simple. It is this. If you have found the answer to everything you have been waiting and hoping and looking for, if you have found that answer in Jesus, then please challenge your friends to come and see Jesus for themselves. Why? Because they trust you. And on top of that, the truth is this. Just like the Jewish people were waiting for 400 years, like waiting and begging God for their Messiah, your friends are waiting and hoping and longing for the answer to their loneliness, for the answer to their sadness and their broken relationships and their past and their future and their baggage. This is what they are waiting for. They might not be able to articulate it right now, but what they are looking for is to be washed clean, to be washed clean of their sins and their mistakes and their secrets and the trauma from their past that they're carrying around and their guilt and their fears. Like, listen to me, they don't realize it yet and they cannot articulate it yet, but your friends and family are waiting and hoping and looking and longing for their Messiah. And because you are one of their people, it is your responsibility to say, I have found what you are looking for. It is your responsibility to say, look, I have found the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, I have found the one who can wash you clean, who can forgive you of your past and suffer with you in your present and give you hope for your future. Like it is your job to say, come and see, come and experience for yourself how amazing the life of Jesus is. Think back on how you started following Jesus. Maybe you grew up in church and so your parents were the first one to say, come and see her. Maybe it was a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a roommate or a coworker or whatever, but think of how much your life has changed since then. And it's all because someone loved you enough to say three simple words, come and see. May we not let our friends and our family die on the vine while we drag our feet and come up with excuses for why they're just not ready yet. The the truth is after the last five weeks, like every value that we live by and that we operate by here at Flatirons, it is designed with your friends and family in mind. And the whole thing is a wash. It is a waste. If you don't say the three most loving words the world has ever heard, come and see for yourself. Come and see. So do not be shy and do not be nervous and do not feel incapable and do not feel ill-equipped. Instead, be brave and be compassionate. And for the love of God and for the love of your people, go to them and say, come and see the answer to everything you have been waiting and hoping and longing for. Invite them to come and see and take one small step toward the awesome life of Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for this room and and this weekend and these these people right here, God. Um, 
God, I thank you so much for that, that first category of people I talked about. It's, it's the people that were on the fence, like uh, we're giving it a try, but we do not know what we believe. And we have a lot of problems and we have a lot of baggage around faith, but here we are and we're leaning in and we're trying to figure it out. God, like, thank you so much for anyone who's sitting in this room or watching online and they're on the fence right now. I've been there before. God, I pray for the courage that it takes to just continue leaning in and ask the really difficult, tough questions and see if you have answers for them. God, for the rest of us in this room who believe in you, like I'll never forget like just fighting with you tooth and nail for so, so long. And then finally in that little coffee shop, I got to that place where I'm like, I just can't, I can't fight you anymore. I'm starting to realize like, I don't understand you, but I know that you are the answer for everything I've been waiting, hoping and longing for. God, all of us have that different story where we finally realize like we are in and we love you and we're thankful for you. And I just thank you that you gave us all those stories. But on top of that, I am praying for bravery and courage. I'm praying for, for empathy for the people that we love. And I'm praying for compassion compassion and courage enough to do the risky thing and invite them to come and see how absolutely amazing you are. God, would you give us the courage to do that? And then we do that, sometimes our friends will say no, but it's like there's this little seed planted in their mind and it's a seed that you can grow, I believe it. And then other times they'll surprise us and they'll say yes. And you start telling them about, you know, our, our life and our experience with you. And maybe they even show up to church. And God, when they do, may they not be amazed at us. And may they not be amazed at the lights and the music and the teacher or whatever. God, would they just be simply absolutely amazed by you because you are absolutely amazing. God, I believe that revival starts with three words. It is an army of people telling the people that they love to come and see. And so right now we're gonna sing this song and this is our prayer. God, we are praying for revival in the hearts of our friends and in our family. God, I love you so very much. I love this church. And most of all, I love your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his awesome, unbelievable, powerful, and majestic name that I pray. Amen.